Well, Patty, uh, we got a great episode here at Carrington Fisk. I really enjoyed learning about Cassenberry. I mean, a new player, but a significant one. Significant, and, and you know, he had some really great insights, and uh, I think that everybody's going to really enjoy it. Uh, you know what's funny? I just realized this, doing this intro. This mm-hmm. might be the first time that we've had a payments executive on the podcast that's paying their agents a salary. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you know, you're right. I've talked about it a hundred times. A hundred times. But, so and, that'll be interesting that they can, our audience can finally hear what that sounds like. Yeah. And I, I, I thought he had some, he was really had some incredibly good points to be made when he was talking about that. Yeah. So, yep. so then, uh, and then you had a really great question from the field, James. Would you like to tell everybody about that? Sure. Yeah. It was actually a really weird one because uh, Visa sent a, one of these compliance complaint uh, notices that go out all the time. And do I deal with them all the time with my consulting clients. Well, they sent one that just really was crazy. And it was, I'm not even going to get into it, but it's just a crazy one that they sent. And I'm going to talk about that and read it to you and talk about kind of the takeaways from it. Um, and then tell us about the insiders. Uh, some some really interesting uh, data on debit card usage. I think people are going to find some interesting things there. And ATM usage as well. And ATM as well. That's right. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Well, so, good stuff, Patty. I'm ready to jump in if you are. Yeah, let's go. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey everybody, uh, today um, James and I are going to be speaking with uh, Carrington uh, Fisk with uh, Castenbury, which is a new ISO. I met Carrington a few weeks ago when I was researching a story on surcharging and cash discounting for the green sheet. And I was really taken by his story, so I really thought it would be fun to share that with everybody out, out in our listening area. So, um, you know, before we get started though, Carrington, would you mind sort of giving everybody like a thumbnail sketch of your background, how you got into the business and your progression and what led to the um, launching of Castenbury? Sure. Um, thanks. Thanks for having me on here. This is pretty exciting. So, um, you know, like everybody in the payments industry, I, I grew up always wanting to be a, a payment processor. I <laughs> hear uh, that a lot. <laughs> you know, no. Um, so I stumbled in it like a lot of other people. So I started out, um, I was a, a disgruntled beer sales guy. Uh, that also How can you owned, be disgruntled in selling beer? <laughs> well, selling didn't necessarily coincide with what you'd like to do with beer, right? Not a whole right? lot of poolside hanging out in, yeah, in the sure. job that I had. So I had a lot of accounts, a lot of visits, a lot of expectations. And I was uh, pretty, I was toward the, towards the top of the team as far as everything measurable from sales. And then I got an annual review that showed that I was a, a D or an F student. Ooh. And it kind of really, like, that was the day I think I decided to quit. Um, but I just didn't know where I was going to go yet. So I owned a pizza place uh, with a buddy of mine that was also a beer guy. And we had uh, we had Heartland as our processor. Okay. And so the other company had, I didn't even know what payment processing was. Right. And I just knew that that's how money got in our bank account. It was really important. Uh, like a lot of merchants, I think, still look at their processing account. And we had this one night where we didn't plan for the type of volume we were going to get because we were new to the restaurant industry because how hard could it be? Everybody wants to own a bar, right? Right. It's easy. Right. Um, and so what happened was, you know, we were manually adjusting our tips on our Heartland E3 terminal. And I goofed instead of adjusting the tip and putting in $5, I put in the next ticket number, which was $3,280. Ooh. And then I settled the batch. I looked at the batch receipt and I'm like, oh my God, like we did not do those numbers. I legit thought somebody was going to drive to my house and want to fight me because I was trying to take money out of their bank account because we batched out and it was good. So long story endless, um, I was able to call and I got fixed. And then a couple of days later, I was looking for job opportunities 
And that's when Heartland popped up. And back then, you know, everything was, was pretty, pretty golden as far right. as uh, that option. And I was like, man, I could really sell that. That's a great company. You know, I had great right. service. I have a good personal story. So um, I started Heartland for a few months. Um, then, then uh, Beyond started and I went and joined Beyond. I became, I started off as division director there. Then I was a vice president there and went into some special project stuff. And then I, uh, then I was in a position where I had to make a transition at the beginning of the pandemic. And I made a couple of calls to people that I, I knew and respected. And I found out about Castenberry and here I am. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. So uh, actually, you know, it's, it's actually a great segue because I was wondering, you know, as I stated in the beginning, you know, Castenberry is pretty unique among ISOs, you know, in that it was launched during the COVID pandemic. I was wondering if you can share with us some of the reasons, you know, behind the launching decision, as well as some of the challenges you incur encountered, you know, setting up shop when so many other businesses were, you know, cutting back operations or worse, shuttering. Yeah, so I ended up, I joined Castenberry um, in the middle of April-ish. And so the, the idea for the company had been a long time coming. So mm -hmm. to say that the decision was made at the beginning of the pandemic, yeah, let's go start a company. Right, right. The decision was made long before then. and But it happened to coincide with the pandemic yeah, when it was going off, yeah, right? Now that we're a year and a half into our uh, two-week stay-at-home order, <laughs> I think right. that, I don't know if anybody could have predicted quite what was going to happen right. or just how sure. challenging it might be or might continue to be. Um, it's been surprisingly good. Like any other business, you know, it got rocked by, by COVID, but um, our reps have done extremely well. I think that we have a, a really good commitment to our merchants. You know, we're very technology forward and really letting the merchants, uh, that merchant desire kind of lead what it is that we bring to the market. Mm -hmm. um, and I think because of that, we're not trying to, you know, cram a, a square a square peg into a round hole. And so right. we've, we haven't been met with a lot of resistance that you would expect in this type of environment. Is, is that why you think it was, I mean, you know, not that it was easy, easy, you know, but the fact that your reps were doing well, you know, even during a pandemic, I mean, obviously it gave you more momentum, right? Yeah. And I think it also, you know, a lot of the reps that, that we have, we, we're not a really big company. We're not a head headcount driven company, like a lot of, you know, more mm -hmm. traditional ISOs or even, you know, the W2 models, which I know we'll get to, um, you know, we really do take a long time to hire. Um, everybody that works here gets a salary and benefits. So the decisions that we make usually take a long time. Sure. And the people that we're bringing on, they, they don't, they don't typically, a lot of them have kind of graduated from that restaurant, retail, mall kiosk, you know, just scalping deals to get a signing bonus kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And so it really supported, like we do a lot with B2B processing, interchange optimization, which I hear you guys talk about all the time. Um, and it's it's a really great frontier for us to, to really work on in the market. And that area of the market has been, you know, gangbusters right. uh, during this entire pandemic. So I think it was a combination of sales reps that that wanted a change of pace over what they'd seen before. Um, I think they wanted to be treated like professionals instead of margin mules. And I think that, you know, giving them the support, you know, I'm usually the person that people go to when they can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. So I'm really accustomed to the super weird integrations and, you know, right. trying to mm -hmm. shave the cat, so to speak. And right. so I think, you know, some of the people that came on board, you know, they were missing that in their, in their previous company. Yeah. And, I 
I like that. And I, I have to say, you know, you just created a new term that I'm going to have to use in a future I love video. It. Margin right? mules. That Margin mules. I, I jotted that down as well. I saw Patty writing as you said that. I was like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not mine. I'll message you where it came from, but it's, okay, it's not technically my term. Okay. Well, that's okay. It's a great term. It's a great term. It's a great term. So, Okay. So, you know, you've talked about, you know, the payment processing side, which we understand. Um, you've talked about, you know, alluded to maybe more of a focus on technology integration, B2B. Give us a little bit of a, a wider view. Like what else do you do besides credit card processing? Uh, maybe get into a little bit more of the weeds as far as you mentioned, like B2B and maybe some of the other business types, you know, what are you offering on the technology and other value added services? Yeah, so I, I run operations, which is weird because I've been in sales for my entire life. Right? I was sure. I was born into sales, I think, from, from the beginning. And what I became, though, is I became that squeaky wheel that would complain when things weren't catering to my, mm-hmm. um, sure. my sensibilities as a salesperson, which are delicate like every salesperson. Sure. And so I got the opportunity to kind of step in and be able to, you know, be the trailblazing person that would fix some of these challenges you know, like CRM problems and things like where I'm like, oh God, how hard can it be? Well, it's it's actually really hard. So uh, for those of you guys who are in sales and yelling at your ops people, like be nice, like we're trying really hard. Um, <laughs> but being able to connect the dots and like, you know, we, we look at things as yes, we want to serve our merchants, but almost more importantly, we want to service our sales reps. They're our primary stakeholder. If our merchants are happy, it's because of our sales reps. It's not because right. of some piece of technology we have or some idea I had or conversation I had behind a closed door. It's because our salespeople are quite literally the best at what they do. And we've cultivated a culture of really, really high performers. And because of that, they have pretty stringent demands on what problems they want to solve. Right. And so when it comes to that, so yeah, payment processing, all the, the dressings that come with it, you know, virtual sure. terminals, you know, pay at the table, all of those things from a technology standpoint, we have the right partnerships in place and we're starting to go down the road of owning our own technology as well. Yeah, I, I find it interesting because, you know, you mentioned Beyond and Heartland. And of course, both of them were, you know, well, uh, are uh, really into owning their own technology and sure. really focusing on that. And so I was kind of curious as a as a newer company kind of competing in that space, you know, um, yeah. one, of, one of the other things I, that, you know, kind of relates, obviously both those companies have a W2 model. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have W2 employees. It sounds like that's the direction you were talking about the salary, um, et cetera. So I'm not as familiar with your model. Can you fill in our audience? You know, the 1099 versus W2, it's been kind of an ongoing debate. Um, I had, you know, dedicated two entire podcast episodes to it recently. Where do you come down on that? Where is Cass and Barry, you know, how, how does, how does it fit and what's the model there? Well, for Cass and Barry, it's a W2 model. Um, but I think when you compare it to the Heartland and beyond that 94 comp, um, the 50% or the, I want to throw numbers out there, but the signing bonus plus the residual or the buyout of residual up front, you know, I think that all of us come from that model and that model works for certain people, just like the 1099 model works really, really well for certain people. Right. I think it's more about the individual than it is about what model is best. It's what's model is best for you. Right. I know for us we got really tired of being in a headcount driven churn and burn constantly bringing on rookie after rookie after rookie. And sadly the net headcount would just never increase. It was, you'd keep your core and then the periphery around the core would just revolve in and out the door. And it creates an intense amount of burden on the training team. It, It never allows the sales rep to become comfortable with the product and technology that they're selling. And the managers often are so busy putting out fires that they can't support their good performers. 
And those good performers kind of get left in the dark, kind of on their own island. And so we've kind of had a lot of people gravitate towards, hey, look, you know, we're going to cater to you. Like you're our ideal person. We're not trying to grow our headcount aggressively. So rather than tell somebody, hey, look, we've got a great story, a great service, a great product. Um, if you're not successful here, you can look in the mirror and know exactly why you're not successful. I've said those same lines to people recruiting. Uh, unfortunately, there's a point where you have a hard time saying that because you no longer believe it. And I think that with those models, unfortunately, the sales rep is taking all the risk. They're putting the financial burden on their family of whether or not they're going to succeed, yet having this quote unquote great training program. I think we look at it differently where if we're going to hire you, I believe the company should bear the risk of the hire, not the individual being hired. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so because of that, you know, you don't have to sign a deal to get a salary. Like you get a salary, like it's, it's a, it's a payment you get just like a regular professional job. Plus you get to, you know, an uncapped residual. So obviously, yes, you do need to produce. It is a sales job after all. Sure. Um, but you know, with those other models that you mentioned, you know, you're only as good as your last month. And that's really tough as a good performer because you might be working on a big deal, a multi-location deal. Let's say they all install uh, in, in August. Right. And maybe you want to take a week or two breather in September, but you're getting hammered because everybody's got numbers they've got to hit. Right. With our model, our reps get to benefit from a great month for their entire career. And it puts a real good focus on retention, um, bringing on the right kinds of merchants, the merchants that you want to service. Mm -hmm. It gives people a little bit more grace on their numbers so that they can target the type of business that they want to bring on board. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I, so if I'm understanding what you're saying, you, you kind of have taken, you know, instead of the like big upfront bonus payments on individual sales, it's mm -hmm. more of, Hey, there's a salary. Um, I would, and then of course you also have the uncapped residuals on the back end. Um, I would imagine that, you know, along with that, there's probably some activity requirements or like, you know, cause when you bring a, somebody on initially, they, maybe aren't going to close a lot of deals the first month. So I'm kind of curious if you could talk to that. I mean, when you bring somebody in, you know, if you don't mind sharing, what is the expectation to get this salary? Is it just like, we believe in you so much, we're going to pay you regardless for X amount of time? Or, you know, I'm just curious how you're, how you're managing the accountability with that. Yeah. So that's the beauty of having a small team. Um, we're not going to bring somebody on that we have to daily aggressively manage. Um, I work with one of the best sales leaders I've ever worked with is Chris Chirelli. And Chris is a magician when it comes to working with sales reps. And look, all top performers go through little peaks and valleys. They go through a sure. funk and then they're on fire and they're signing deals every day sometimes. Right. Um, every single person that's come here has had either a career best week, career best quarter, career best month, career best deal, career best everything. Um, so what we're doing is working. It, it, we were of the opinion that if I have to manage your daily activity, it probably isn't a good fit for you. So what you're saying then is that, okay, there's not an expectation that, you know, you don't hire somebody and they have to immediately start producing on week two, but you're hiring somebody who you feel is experienced enough that, you know, they need, you know, don't need a whole lot of training on selling merchant services, but more training on what you have to offer. And then they can go out in the field and they, if, if your selection process is as you believe it should be, they're going to start producing within a couple of weeks. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the thing is, you know, our, our biggest uh, 
enemy when it comes to bringing somebody new on is just quiet. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm not getting a phone call, hey, can we integrate to this? Or, hey, here's the situation. What do you think we should position here? Right, right. Hey, how much does this thing cost? Hey, can right. you take a peek at this statement with me? If we're not getting that, you know, it's pretty clear there's not a whole right. lot going on, even if you want a second opinion. We have people who can, you know, do a statement analysis with the best of them, but they just want to double check. Like, hey, is this right? right? Am I really making this much money on that deal? Right. Like, yes, you are. Go sign it. Well, and and it's interesting because I think your point, you know, goes back to really the point I was kind of making, which was prospecting activity. Right. And so, so I totally agree. I think, you know, when you get new people on board, I've been preaching this in consulting sessions and and things for the last three years of why are we not paying people more like consistent money? It's like, ultimately, if you hire the right person and you get them to go prospect, you win. That's it. Right. So why not pay them a salary with the expectation that you're going to do something, you know, we're going to give you your space and you're, you know, right. And it sounds like the the brand of agents you're hiring, you're able to give them a significant amount of space, which is fantastic. Um, but ultimately it's like, we just want to make sure you're out there doing something, right? Like you're prospecting, you know, we're, we're, there's activity. And and again, yeah, you're going to go through your slump or your, or your you know, and you're, you have your good times, but we just want to make sure something is happening for this payment that that we're getting. I mean, I'm assuming these people are all, spread out or is, is this actually a geographic focus thing or is this nationwide? Uh, it's, it's kind of like the best candidate at the time. Um, yeah, we've had to turn, we probably had to turn more people away than we've hired. Um, yeah, just, be, just sure. because we want to make sure the resources are there. Yeah. Um, we're deliberately growing slowly so that we grow correctly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we've all been involved with companies that skyrocket and it overstresses systems that are in place for a smaller team. Um, So like we're now embracing some pretty amazing like boarding tools and things like that, that will allow us to grow faster if we want to. And that's the beauty of not having a ton of private equity or crazy loans. It's a self-funded company. Because Mm -hmm. of that, we get to, I guess, do things the way that we want to do it and really focus on our reps and our merchants. Yeah. Well, that's great. And you kind of already touched on my last the question I had last, which was, you know, on the recruiting and, you know, how you recruit through a pandemic. But I'm, I'm getting you kind of already alluded to that, which is basically you're more turning people away. But I guess we could talk about where these people are coming from. So you have gotten mm-hmm. some candidates that have worked out apparently very well. Is this primarily from referrals from other agents or, you know, what are you doing some more traditional recruiting activities? How did you get these agents during the pandemic? So I am blissfully not typically involved with the recruiting process until <laughs> uh, until they need an email address and then I get them set up and we go right. through some onboarding. So um, I, I'm a pretty decent recruiter. I'm, I'm a little rough around the edges, I think a little bit too blunt maybe sometimes. Sure. Um, but I think a lot of people, look, you know, I, I'm not the most quiet person. I'm pretty opinionated when it comes to this stuff. And, and I think sure. that that attracts certain people to want to work at this company. Same yeah, right. thing with Chris and same thing with Jake and, and Blaine Byrne now too, who joined us back in November. You know, I think that the people that we have, like people want to work with us. And that's, that's actually been just about every hire that we've had has come to us saying, Hey, you know, I saw what you guys are doing or, Hey, I'm really struggling with this or, Hey, I'm tired of having to explain X, Y, and Z fees to my merchants. Like we're, we're pulling a lot of those people that they want that support. A lot of them want that like family atmosphere that, that Chris and and I have really been focused on maintaining and creating um, that you don't a lot of times get in that 1099 world. Like all of our people, they, you know, videos are on during chats and they're joking around with each other back and forth. It really is like a work family. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's really important because it gives, it makes them more vested in, in the company. Right. I mean, yeah. 
uh, you know, it's their company as well as your company. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. If you don't mind, um, Harrington, I'd like to transition to a topic that we talk a lot about on this podcast, and that's surcharging and cash discounting. And I guess, first off, I can't, I know that you and I spoke, but I do not remember. I know you offer cash discounting. Do you also sell surcharging? We do, uh, not okay. as much as the cash discounting, but and, we, we do offer it. Yeah, I was wondering, well, so I wanted to know your experience with cash discounting, but I also want to know how you feel about surcharging. You just said you don't offer it as much. Is that because of the markets that you target or because it's a harder sell? I think that, you know, if you are, and I've been here before, my previous company, we didn't have a, a cash discount program. So we're kind of stuck surcharging. You're going to lose the cash discount every day in that that middle band of, of merchant that's a good fit for it. Mm -hmm. And the reason is just the proliferation of debit usage. Right. When you have eliminated, you know, the ability to offset fees on half of your customers purchasing mm -hmm. cards. Right. It, it's not as sexy as the other guy who comes in is like, well, what do you mean you got to pay for half of it? Right. So it's a competitive disadvantage to only have that model. Um, one of the other things, too, from surcharging, being able to uh, set your flat rate on credit and signature debit as different rates, both flat rate, but different percentages, I think is critical for a surcharging model to be effective. Mm -hmm. uh, and in my previous company, we didn't have the ability to do that. So a lot of this, you know, offsetting fees has been relatively new for me here. Okay. Um, I piloted the program at uh, my previous company and gave presentations. And then the visa ruling came out or the, uh, I think memo. it was the, the memo. The memo. Yes. Not a ruling. Not the a infamous ruling. memo. Yes. James, James knows it's not a ruling. And uh, I'll throw my disclaimer out there. I'm not an attorney or a, a CPA either. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, <laughs> but when, when that happened, I was actually doing a roadshow and, and we, I had just presented this, you know, kind of, kind of backwards program that we had tried to make fit with the right. leadership sensibilities around this stuff. Right. And basically it all just went away. Like that afternoon, I was like, well, that was, that was fun for yeah. two weeks. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. I think, uh, I think my most watched video and, and most read blog post was uh, the one I put out the day that that you know memo came out. Yeah. Uh, you know, Visa yeah. declares war on cash discounting. And I read it yeah. completely differently. It's funny. I, I think I misread it because I forwarded it to my team. I'm like, guys, check this out. Like, you know, I was excited about it the way that I read it. <laughs> right. So I, I'm still like, think look I at this. Visa's on board with cash discounting. Yeah, Visa's all fantastic. over it. Oh, except right. that yeah. they won't let us do it this way. Right. Um, right. Look, I, I think that. I think that Visa, if you look at it, like I believe that salespeople act the way they're compensated. I feel like companies act yeah. in accordance to their bottom line. Right. Um, Visa, Visa being against cash discounting is because they're afraid people are going to stop using Visa cards. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not a specialist on Visa. I'm not a market analyst, an attorney right. or a CPA. But I think that Visa has realized just like all of us out there who've sold a cash discounting deal, it doesn't impact credit card usage. Right. It, right. it just doesn't. No, it doesn't. Um, the merchant, you know, the merchants aren't experiencing a high number of complaints. You know, complaints are a product of serving customers. They're yeah, just right. going to happen whether you charge 75 cents instead of 60 cents for cheese or whether you have your customers share in the cost of processing credit cards. Right. It's not going anywhere. Um, and I think Visa sees that. And I think that if they were going to, um, you know, try to really roadblock that thing, they could. They haven't, but they haven't, and if they haven't already, it's sort of like you know the <clears throat> the barn door. You know, it's the horses are already out. You can't close that barn door. Right. Yeah. But what's been so? What has been your experience? Has been with cash discounting? 
Has that been popular with your merchants? Yeah, it's been popular with merchants. It's been less popular with sales reps. Um, you know, I think a lot of them struggled to get to that point because a lot of our sales reps are really value sellers. Um, mm -hmm. They're not just saying, hey, look, if I can save you five basis points and right. two pennies, will you be my friend forever? It's not right. Right. like it's usually a value sell. We're talking about, you know, making their process better, giving them better right. oversight. You know, we do focus a lot on transparency. And as a company, it's not just transparency with the merchant. It's transparency from me to my rep and from my rep to me. Mm -hmm. So our feedback loop is complete. And that has been a real breath of fresh air for us as a team. So when they say like, I don't really like cash discount, I don't like selling it. Right. You know, sometimes it's just helping them check their own bias. And right. I was like, well, I said, you don't, you don't own that Christmas tree farm or that pizza shop or whatever. Right. Like, you know, you should at least bring it up. So I have a lot of reps who approach it from a very nonchalant standpoint. Right. They're like, hey, look, I don't know if you've heard about this program. It's called our cash flow program. And, um, you know, I don't know if it's a good fit for you as a business owner, but I would not be doing my job if I didn't at least walk you through how it works. Right, right. That's, that's been landing us a lot of, yeah. of cash discount opportunities. Well, and plus you got to think too, that's going to land you so many down the road when, right. you know, as, as it, because I tell people this all the time, it's like, you might be in a market where cash discounting is just not accepted yet. I mean, right. it is a network effect. Right. And so when the competing Christmas tree farm on the other side of town right. starts to do it and they're like, wait a minute, well, you don't want them calling the competitor and saying, Hey, who are you using to do that? You want them saying, Oh, I remember my sales rep told me about this when exactly. they signed me up. And then you call, you know, that that's, that's what you really want to avoid is that attrition from, you know, by not even mentioning it. Cause it, there, there's no denying that it is just growing in popularity exponentially, you know? It is. Yeah, but but I think it, there's also no denying that there's certain pockets of the population. You know, I, I don't know about Pennsylvania, James, but here right. in Maryland, you know, the Maryland, Virginia, Delaware area. Yeah. I, I still haven't seen it. I mean, I don't, I've seen surcharging a few times, but I right. haven't seen it. And, well, I, I, I live in this area, so you can right. imagine what it's like here. Yeah, so I, course, I got a rep in Annapolis. I'm going to send them your way, Patty. You can take okay. it to all your places. I, I'll do that, guys. <laughs> That'd be a great idea. Yeah. Because it is, yeah. it, it strikes me as an unusual. Is there is there a particular, and I know you and I talked about this when, when I was writing my article, that there are, I mean, don't you think there are specific uh, verticals or even transaction sizes where cash discounting really works best? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, that middle range, I think when you get into really high ticket, when you get up over a few hundred dollars, especially, or if mm -hmm. it's an invoicing environment, mm -hmm. I think cash discount gets a little bit more, a little bit more difficult to implement. Yeah. You're going to really have to understand your technology. And I know, James, you've had somebody on to talk about a couple of different gateways that, that allow not just to apply a fee to the transaction, but also give them a choice to avoid the fee. Right, right. Like from a compliance standpoint, you have to understand what you're dealing with there. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I think that that, you know, $20 to $75 average ticket, that's your bread and butter. I mean, you're yeah. going to get a lot less resistance there. It's more of a rounding error than something right. you're like, oh my God, right. it's a lot cheaper than going to an ATM. Like I think from the, sure. the financial mechanics make a lot more sense there. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as far as, you know, merchant bands or merchant industry segments, I, I think obviously your restaurants, your retail, any kind of card present merchant is a fantastic option. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw, I believe it was on your Facebook page, James. It was a uh, agent who was having, you know, had sold cash discounting to somebody who did invoicing and their card volume tanked. 
um, right? You know, because it yes. was on the invoice, it was written on the right. invoice, and that just yeah. didn't flow right, you know. Right. Um, well, yeah, and I think you know, I think it's it's been the thing that's been so interesting to me, you know, doing consulting for a lot of people that sell cash discounting. Mm-hmm. For me right now, it's like, wow, that was such an easy question for me to answer 12 months ago, you know, of like, who do you mm-hmm. avoid? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. With cash discounting, like right, don't right. go to them, you know, well, that was a pretty easy list for me. You know, now it's like, well, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's so many, it's like you mentioned large ticket invoicing. I mean, like you mentioned, you know, I do know people that are going after merchants that do two, $3,000 average ticket. With and invoicing. we've got a, we've got a uh, place that does like transmission rebuilds and repairs yeah. His average tickets, like 700 bucks, right? His car usage dropped and yeah, that's exactly what he wanted. So right, I mean, right. people, people really do actually choose the alternative sometimes. Yeah, it's that like, one. So it, right. yeah, it gets a little, a little I think a lot of it has to do with the owner. Like the owner is like, this guy, he's a, he's a crusty dude. You know, if you come right. in there and you complain about it, he's gonna say, look, there's an ATM across the street. Good luck. You know, I'll sit on this invoice if you want. But they right. they probably go walk across the street because instead of paying thirty bucks, they come in and they pay yeah. their four dollars or whatever. Four dollars or whatever, yeah, sure. Yeah, so I think that um, you know the market's ripe for it. I think there's a lot of yeah. things that are going in the favor of cash right. discount. I mean, God, how many times have you uh, door dashed a coffee and paid like sixteen bucks for a Starbucks? Right. That's uh, exactly, and that's why consumers, consumers are consumers yes. are getting more and more used to it. And I think um, you know there again. I think the key is you know you've got to get the merchant. You know, the agent has to be on board with it mm-hmm. so that they can get the merchant on board with it so that they can get the consumer on board with it. Yeah, it's about right. training. It's yeah, right. about training. It's about product knowledge. And, yes. and kudos to you, James, because I love that you're, you know, I think a lot of people talk about cash discount as this, you know, shortcut to being right. successful in this business. And I think it can accelerate things for sure. Right. But it is a product. It is a yeah. skill. It is a muscle that you have to develop. Yeah. I mean, there are so many deals that we pull from other companies because of reconciliation problems, because of a lack of merchant understanding. And so I love when somebody's already running a quote unquote cash discount program, right? Um, Because, you know, we can ask four or five questions and most of the time they don't know the answer to three of them. Right. It's a guaranteed appointment. Yeah, for sure. 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 And I also think, and you and I spoke about this, that it's a lot, although it's a training process, you can get agents out on in the field, faster or at least new agents out in the field faster when they're selling cash discounting than educating them on all the the traditional pricing models and and you know the sales cycle would presumably be shorter as well right yeah i think it takes away one of the most challenging things of this business which is statement analysis yeah right. you know it allows you to move faster and maybe skip that two or three day process of, of hammering on a calculator or sliding mm-hmm. beads on an abacus trying to figure out <laughs> you know how many basis points are padded here and what's there um look i want to be clear though anybody who's ever worked with me knows that i believe in mastering your craft and I believe that that is a process you should embark upon every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, you know, there is a learning curve. I right. think everybody should be able to read a statement at some point. Right. I right. certainly don't expect them to do it in the beginning. Um, but like our reps, all of them can read a statement. It doesn't mean they have to. We have a sales concierge that that is her job. Her job is to look at statements, help them with proposals, help them with MCC qualification right. data. Uh, looking at the nitty gritty of some of this stuff. It's been a huge yeah. asset to our salespeople. Well, it's so funny you bring that up. Uh, Carrington, we were just talking, uh, me and my ops guy were just talking yesterday about this, how it's so funny right now. I have these like two businesses, you know, where mm-hmm. one of them is ISOAMP, which is like the leader in doing the statement analysis automation, right? So we have all these companies, your 
both of your previous companies, you know, that are okay, sending us statements to analyze. And then meanwhile, I'm my other business, I'm pushing everybody to sell cash discounting and they're never they don't need that service. You know, I'm like, yeah. what am I doing? You know, but no, that's called capturing entire market. Right? Exactly. If they're not gonna do cash discount, get right. a statement. If you're into cash ISO discounting, land. you need my training. If you're exactly. not into cash discounting, you need my statement analysis. I'm trying exactly. to exactly but it's just yeah. funny. And you need to teach you how to fish or you can buy the fish from me. Either way, <laughs> right? Either paid. way, whatever you want to do. I saw the fishing poles and the fish, you know. Exactly. Uh, that's right. funny. Yeah, that's, yeah, this way you can lie about your catch. I'll give you right. the fish to prove it. Right, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> touche, touche. Well, Carrington, this has been so interesting. I really enjoyed uh, talking. It's been, I think, very insightful. Um, and I uh, was wondering if you don't mind, if you, you know, if anybody in our audience wants to reach out and learn more about Castenbury, where would you send them to learn more? Uh, sure. So um, we always have a website like every other business since, you know, the year 2000. Uh, it's castenberry.com. That's K-A-S-T-E-N-B as in boy, E-R-R-Y.com. Um, check me out. You're welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there. Um, we're more about our people, I think, than our company. So if anybody who works at Castenberry, reach out to them, mm-hmm. have a conversation with them about their experience and, you know, pick their brain, see see what they've liked, what they've disliked. Um, we're all like I said, we're all pretty wide open, man. Life's too short to try to hide stuff. It's just a lot easier to keep track of yeah. when you're when you're doing it the right way. I agree. Now, one I have to ask one last question here. Mm-hmm. The name, where, yes. where does this come from? Yeah, I was going to ask that actually too. I'm just just my own curiosity. <laughs> yes, curious here. So, so Castenberry is a combination of of two people um, on our founders That's that made huge impacts in their lives. Um, okay, got it. And it's a, it's a really cool story. And I'm going to shoot you a message of somebody that you should talk to about it, maybe for another episode. Yeah, great. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, really awesome. good information. Really appreciate the time, Carrington. Cool. Well, Thanks, guys. Yeah, everybody. Carrington Fisk, Chief Operating Officer at Castenberry, K-A-S-T-E-N-B-E-R-R-Y.com. Thank Nailed you, Carrington. It. All right. Thanks, guys. So, Patty, you know, one of the things we talked about in a recent episode with uh, Jaron Rice, uh, who uses NMI, is we were talking about the white labeling and just right. how crucial that is when you're out there. You know, you're out there selling. Why right. not sell your own brand even when yeah. you're selling the gateway solution? Exactly. And I think, you know, really it, it adds um, depth to the to the, to the the right. ISO and the sub-ISO to be able to right. say, here's something that I can offer you. Right. not a third party that I'm yeah. going to bring into the relationship. Yeah. And you know, I'll tell you from using other gateways, one of the things I love about NMI is not only can you brand it like it's yours, mm-hmm. you can control it like it's yes. yours. Yes. Yes. Right. And so that's so important. You know, I'll give you a, a personal example. When we were, when I was really involved with running our um, self-storage software company that has mm-hmm. integrated with NMI, you know, we would get all these clients and it was like signing them up as something that I had an employee trained to like board them on NMI. Right. That employee knew how to, you know, help them go in and look at a particular payment, how to run settlements, mm-hmm. how to run, run reporting. We could go in on the back end and we could handle all of that for them, right. you know, create a new subscription when we needed to or whatever. So not only is that, you know, the integration there with the software, but on the back end. So I think the white labeling and just kind of making the solution your own. Right. Um, it's just so important. Um, if you haven't done so yet, go to ccsalespro.com slash N-M-I, Nancy Mary I, so NMI and um, check it out, learn more about it. Uh, just found a good ebook with them lately. So look at some different resources and learn more about it. Yeah. And if you haven't downloaded that ebook, it's a really great ebook. I highly recommend it. And Thanks, uh, where, where would we find that James? Let's just mention that as yeah, well. If they just go to ccsalesforce.com slash NMI, we'll have a link right there where they can download the ebook as well. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, James. 
This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So everybody, I have a very unique question from the field today. Um, one of my consulting clients, a large processing company, uh, reached out to me because they had received a notice from Visa, um, a yes, compliance issue. This, right. Mm -hmm. And um, it was very bizarre. Uh, and so I'm just going to read it and tell you the situation and then right. dive into my belief about it because I thought it was so interesting. So yes, go ahead. Okay, so this is a merchant, uh, this is a card present merchant that's doing a, what we would consider a traditional cash discount model, non-cash adjustment being applied to credit and debit cards. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is, you know, Visa sent the notice to um, the, you know, the processing company here, the ISO, and the complaint, it says complaint received by Visa. This is what the notice says. It says complaint received by Visa, surcharge prohibited by state law. Mm -hmm. Okay. This merchant is in the state of Florida mm -hmm. and the, you know, it goes on to say this. Um, and I should mention that along with this visa also sent a picture of the sign that was clearly displayed um, and a uh, picture of the receipt that showed the non-cash adjustment. Um, and again, I'm not an attorney. This is not legal advice, but I did help them create the language on the sign, et cetera, et cetera. So okay. this merchant is charging. This is what visa says in their notice. This merchant is charging a 3.5% surcharge. They claim to offer a discount for cash payments. However, they charge cash customers the advertised rate in the menu without a discount. The credit card surcharge is in excess of the menu price, which appears to be illegal, not non-compliant, appears to be illegal under Florida statute 501.0117. So, you know, they send this to me and they're like, how do we respond to this? <laughs> and right. I'm like, well, it's so interesting on so many levels. Number one, let's, you know, the elephant in the room here, Florida statute 501.0117 was declared unconstitutional right. in 2018. Right. And therefore the attorney general, the AG in Florida has not been enforcing this statute for like three years. Right. So where do you even begin with this notice? I mean, you know, number one, the whole premise of it is ridiculous. They're basically saying, hey, there's a law on the books in Florida that was deemed unconstitutional, and we've received a complaint that your merchant is breaking that law. Right. As they should. It's unconstitutional. Yeah. Like, what right. do you want? You know? So um, obviously, there are forces at play here trying to get this statute officially removed from... It was, ne it was never actually removed from the books, but okay. just... The AG is not enforcing it because obviously you don't enforce a law that you know is unconstitutional right, right. because then people will sue you and say, they'll sue the attorney general and say, you're enforcing this law that's unconstitutional and you will lose because it's unconstitutional. So right, right. this is a ridiculous premise, first of all. The other thing that I thought was so interesting about this is why on earth is, is Visa even giving them this complaint? It's like saying, we wanted to let you know that you're breaking someone else's rule. Right. Well, who cares? Where, where's their place to do that? Right. Like, okay. And so what? Why are you telling me? You know what I right. mean? 
Right. So the idea here, and, and then the other, the third thing that I that I noticed here that is so interesting is this was a credit card payment. This was not a debit card payment. Mm-hmm. And so it's very interesting here that Visa is is this would apply to a surcharge, mm-hmm. just like a cash discount. You know, they're not under saying, Visa rules. Right. Right. But what they're what they're saying is, you know, this notice that they're sending, this could just as easily have been sent to somebody doing compliant surcharging. Right. Because on a compliant surcharge program in the state of Florida, of which there are literally tens of thousands, right. um, they are also adding a fee above the menu listed menu price in a restaurant, which is illegal under this Florida statute that was declared unconstitutional. Right, right. So big takeaways for me. Number one, um, why on earth Visa sent this? I really don't know. I've reached out to my connections in the industry. Nobody else that I talked to has seen one like this. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't know if it was just a little <laughs> glitch in there. A little hiccup. You know, I don't know. Or maybe it represents a new tactic that they're using to try to scare ISOs and uh, merchants, you know, into not doing these non-cash adjustment programs. Um, I will say I find it exceedingly shocking and surprising that when I reached out to some of the compliant surcharge providers in the state of Florida, none of them had ever seen this. Right. And right. you would think that they would have seen it by now. Um, and so I don't know, is it a new thing that Visa is doing to try to discourage these programs or are they only discouraging the cash discount? And they're saying, hey, if you see the non-cash adjustment, but it's a credit card, well, they can't really send a notice and say it's not compliant because it is compliant there. Right. If it was a debit card, they would have got a different notice saying, hey, you're adding a surcharge to a debit card. You right. can't do that. And then you'd have to fight all of that, which I, right. you know, I work with, I work with, you know, clients all the time to fight those. That's not a big right. deal. You know, we know how to get get that done. But this one I thought was interesting. And so it just kind of shows what Visa kind of the path that they're going down, the the level that they're going to. And, and it just, to me, rings true with the scare tactics that, you know, we just talked a little bit ago to uh, Carrington about the uh, memo, the Visa memo. Right, the Visa memo. You know, and all of this. And again, I think at the end of the day, all Visa seems to have left in their arsenal against cash discounting and, and even surcharging, which... You know, in case you were wondering, yes, Visa does still hate surcharging. You know, oh yeah. Look at this this notice they sent. You know, now they hate surcharging. They always have. Are they allowing it now? Yes. Why? Because they were ordered to by the court because they made this uh, settlement right because of their interchange fees and they were trying to win that battle as best they could and they gave up the the surcharging. So make no mistake about it. They're going to fight this thing every step of the way. Right. It doesn't matter. They, you know, it's just, just like the last hurrah. I know. And, you and know, then, you know, it's, it's crazy. You start getting notices like this. I mean, I'll be interested to see if more people, if you get one like this, let me know. I'll be glad to help you understand what I told them and how to, how right. to kind of deal with it with Visa. But you know, it's just crazy. Well, you know, I, I, the two thoughts occurred to me when you were talking, James, yeah. and one is that I thought you said in the beginning, it was a large processing company. And I could almost see Visa doing doing it with a small company, you know, because yeah. they can, they have the weight of Visa and they could be trying yeah. to intimidate. Well, and a small I and company. I should I should say I mean large is a relative term. It, among processing companies, this is a small one actually. Okay, but, you know, in That's other right. words, of of companies that control the entire process, right? right? right. So right. it's a large ISO. It's a small process. Okay, okay. And yeah. but the other thing I was thinking too is, and and you know, I could be off on this, but I bet you. They got a letter from a disgruntled consumer. Well, they consumer. definitely did. Yeah, right. Yes. And it was somebody who had enough clout that they felt they had to do something about it. Sure. Just well, and to- it's interesting because it would have come from the issuing bank. So, right. and that's what it. Yeah, exactly. Right. So maybe yeah. the issuing bank, you know, passed it along and said, "Hey, this is one of our best 
customers or we have a, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know either, but I'm just saying, yeah. I mean, cause it seems to Possible. me, cause I've heard, I've, you know, I, I've been on Facebook with friends who are like, look at this. They searched. And in fact, a friend did this who is retired from visa. Right. right and she right. thought she was like, she knew everything. And she's like, look what they did. They surcharged me on this, on this meal. And that's against visa rules. And I had to write back to her and go, um, no, that, you know, you've been retired a while. <laughs> you know? right, right. Those rules have changed. Um, yeah. But, you know, I could, you know, and, and besides, I said to her, and besides, if you didn't want to pay it, just why didn't you pay in cash? Right. Um, you right. know, but, um, but yeah, I think it's really interesting that they're still trying in vain, you know, right. to, and, 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 and the fact is, as we talk with Carrington, it's not like surcharging and cash discounting is really diminishing card volumes. Yeah, not at all. And, you know, Patty, I really think at this point, the only thing left to see is who is going to start the conversation about making these programs consistent and compliant. Right, right. You know, why on earth FIS or Fiserv yeah. have not done this is really just boggles my mind. I, yeah, you know, I agree with you. Why on, why wouldn't you want to be, you know, in other words, why don't one of these companies come to me and say, look, either do something about this or get off our backs. Right. You have right. 90 days to figure out what you're going to do. And then after that, Fiserv is going to become the company that promotes and is all about cash discounting because what you have right now is you have all these ISOs. Mm -hmm. And they have the processing volume that these big companies want. And mm -hmm. they're all calling me saying, who do we do? Who's supportive of cash discounting that we should work with? And I'm like, right. well, none of them are publicly supportive. These big, you know, I'm talking about, you know, Tesis, Pfizer, First right. State, FIS, um, you know, the, the Elevon. None of them are publicly supportive because of Visa and, and MasterCard and the, right. the banks, you know, so they, they're not supporting it. And it's like, this is ridiculous. This fight, th this is a battle that's already been fought and already been lost. Right. In the marketplace. It's over. Right. So right. when is somebody going to go to Visa and say, hey, guess what? In case you maybe missed it, there's like 700,000 merchants in America that are doing this or whatever the number is. Right. So you lost that one. Right. So what are you going to do about it? If you really are just, if your next thing is you're going to send another memo, let us know that because we're going to start promoting it and encouraging ISOs to come to use us, encouraging ISVs to integrate with us. We're going to encourage everybody to use us for cash discounting and we're going to publicly support it. Yeah. And yeah. the first one that the does that. The first one that does that is like, it's going to be a stampede going to them. It is. And there's yeah. a reason why some of these companies, I won't name names, but some of these companies that would not be considered the massive ones, but they're becoming so much more competitive. And the companies that I'm telling you, you know, 10 years ago, they were getting individual agents, very small teams. Now they're buying their own back end and they're boarding huge ISOs mm -hmm. underneath of them. Why? Because they're willing to fight for cash discounting. They're willing to handle the compliance stuff. And so yeah. it's an interesting market shift. Why these big companies are still, it's like, is Fiserv really that scared of Visa at this point? I mean, you know, I don't think it's that they're that scared of Visa as much as they're such a big company and merchant services yeah. is only one component of that. For sure. For sure. And and also they do have in their other lines of business a lot of bank clients. They do, of course. Yeah. So they that's a good point. They have they have a lot of other vested interests, but it does yeah. seem like, you know, maybe T Sys then. You know, like yeah, and, and they right. and, and they have been the kind of the go-to, but 
you know, somebody it's like, you gotta be somebody out there has gotta be big enough that they want to take this on and say, yeah. let's do this. And let's, let's do it. And again, and let's work with visa to just make it compliant. Let's make it, you know, I mean, which I would hate because it would kill like half my consulting business, you know, of, of solving these confusing problems, but sure, sure, I would, sure. I would welcome it because the industry needs that, you know, we need to just mm -hmm. say, look, that you can do it on a debit card. Okay. But you can't go above 2.53% on a debit card, whatever. I don't know. What is right. the solution? And it, right. you know, whatever that is, they need to like, let's get it over with, you know? Right. So anyway, yeah, that's my yeah. thought. Thanks, James. That was really good. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. So everybody, Pulse, the debit card network that's owned by Discover, Right. Uh, just published its latest annual debit card issuer study, um, which presents uh, data on debit card usage from 2020. You know, this is one of those reports I look out for every year because it's chock full of interesting trends. And I thought I just kind of like uh, parsed through it last night and pulled out what I thought were some interesting things that, you know, our, our listeners might find useful. Um, so first off, and I think it's kind of interesting, you know, we talked with Carrington about debit and surcharging and the problems with debit and surcharging. Right. So I thought it was really interesting to note, to go along with that, that debit cards remain Americans' preferred payment method and account for 51% of all non-cash payments last year. Wow. So, you know, that's yet another reason why cash discounting is yep. better than surcharging in a lot of respects. Um, Total debit spend, including prepaid debit, rose 8% to over uh, $3.4 trillion last year. All this data is from last year, so I, I won't wow. say it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the average debit card ticket jumped 10% to $44.80. Wow, that's interesting. Which was a little okay. bit more than, a, it was about a $4.30 um, uptick from 2019. Um, interesting. And not surprisingly, card not pay, uh, present payments grew 23%. Wow, yeah, of course. And they now account for one of th one in three debit card payments. Hmm. Also not surprising, card present transactions per active user fell 10%. And okay. here's, something, here's something I thought was really interesting. Debit card issuers that are subject to the Federal Reserve Board regulation capping interchange, the Durban Amendment, on average gross now mind you the uh the ceiling any any financial institution or card issuer under 10 billion dollars in assets is not subject to that to the durban amendment right. okay so among those that have 10 billion or more in assets they grossed 71 dollars per active card per year which is about okay. a seven percent increase over the previous year and that's just interchange you're talking that's about. just interchange yeah. Now, but here's the other thing. Among those that are exempt from the Fed's cap, the Fed caps, average gross revenue per active card was $132. Wow. wow. Goodness. That really right? just shows the effect of the Durban Amendment and why the banks fought it so hard. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a 33, almost 34% increase over the previous year. Yeah. So I thought that that was really telling. And, you know, I'm going to pre present a um, 
a report um, next week on, you know, the Fed has proposed uh, tightening the restrictions on, you know, under its German regulation. Making that, you're saying they're talking about tightening the regulation, meaning more more institutions are going to be regulated, or you mean the that, ones that are regulated? Are that's one it? of the things that came up in the comment letters, and that's okay. why I wanted to talk about that next week. Yeah. The actual proposal had to do with the, um, the um, choice between networks. Right. Remember, yes. I think I've talked about uh, this in the past, how yep, not all cards sure. enable them to use pin debit networks to to route transactions. Sure. So, but there's some interesting stuff in there. I, I was amazed there were like over 500 comments, including from the Justice Department. So we'll get to that, cool. like I said, next week. Yeah. But um, the number I thought was also interesting, the... Um, number of contactless debit card transactions was up sixfold. Um, but it still only accounts for 1.6% of total debit volume. And, a, and a, so what is that exactly? You're talking about a tap and pay? Is that what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, a tap or? and pay, a tap and pay debit card. Okay. Or, or could that also be a card used through something like an Apple pay? Is that still? Yeah, they actually, they actually stripped that out separately. That's separate or like a Google wallet, that sort of right. thing. That's that's like a mobile payment. That's a mobile payment. I see. Exactly. Okay. And this is just okay. the the contactless cards. The tap and pay. That's the tap and pay, which okay, I thought so, was, yeah, only 1.6%, you know, of total. Yeah. And well, that, if, it, if it has six X growth though, for two or three years. So that tell, yeah, right. <laughs> but 1.6, if that was six X growth, that means it right. was pretty minuscule in 2019. Yes. Right. So, um, and here's the other really interesting uh, data point that I pulled out of it. ATM transactions were down 19%. Wow. And I, yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with consumer reluctance to use cash because they think money is kind of dirty and they don't want to, you know, have too much touching going on between them and their merchants. And, yeah. uh, and you know, especially, and also I think like the closing of cash heavy businesses like bars. Yeah, I was right? about to say, I mean, really for a big chunk of the year, you know, there wasn't really a good reason to get cash out anyway. You couldn't right? go anywhere. Exactly. And in fact, some yeah. debit card issuers said they saw uh, usage declines at ATMs as high as 60%. Sure. Yeah. Depending on yeah. the geography. I mean, you go to like New York city, they haven't had a reason to use an ATM machine for a year and a half. Exactly. Exactly. Really. You know, yeah. it's crazy. You know, we've talked in the past, in years past, I've talked about, Hey, you should be selling ATMs and right. Right. This kind of like puts the kibosh on that. Yeah. I think. Well, you got to wonder though. I mean, I'd be interested to see what the 2021 numbers are going to look like. Yeah, I, I would too. Yeah. yeah and I mean, of course next year we'll show you those, but right, uh, of course, but for the time being, I thought, you know, interesting really shows a lot of the impact of COVID, particularly with respect to cash, yeah, contactless, right. and the, and, in, and the uh, card not present stuff. Yeah. Oh, great stuff, Patty. Thank you for sharing all that. Sure thing. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.